So good morning. Good morning. It has been a long time since I've been here up here, and uh, it's years actually. It's glad to be. I'm glad to be back. I most of you know I share the preaching and teaching duties with Bill Bell over at Maple Root Baptist Church in Coventry. I've been doing that for a number of years. Way back in 2008, I started asking a question at the start of every sermon. In fact, every time I get on the platform, I ask the same question, and I'm not tired of asking it. In fact, I'd like to be known as the guy who always asks that question. I've actually asked it here before. Did anybody know what it is? Yes, basically, you paraphrased it, but the way I ask it is, are you reading your Bible? Amen. Amen. And that was, not, that was enthusiastic from one gentleman here. But are, are you reading your Bible? Yes. Good, I'm glad to hear it, because, of course, the Bible tells us who we are, tells us who we're meant to be. Its message is timeless, and its message is for all times. It is the Word of God, inspired by God and preserved by God. The Bible was written by more than by some 40 different men over a period of some 1,500 years. Most of these men never met. They never got to see what each other wrote. Yet the whole Bible holds together amazingly, incredibly, powerfully. It holds together because it's the Word of God. If you want to make sense out of this crazy world in which we live, if you want to prepare for the future, you need to read your Bible. All right? Amen. Amen. Speaking of the Bible, at Maple Root, Bill and I have been teaching through the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. We're in chapter 18 now, and I want to share with you from that chapter today. We've been going through Matthew for a long time. So a little background. Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew. No surprise. Matthew was a Jewish man who lived in the first century A.D. at the same time that Jesus was walking on the planet. One of the many things I really love about the Bible is it's a book about real people and real places, real times, real events. It's verifiable. It's not fiction. It's the Word of God. Amen. In Matthew's time, Israel, as you know, was under Roman rule, and Matthew worked as a notorious tax collector. Notorious because, like other tax collectors, he extorted money from the very people he was supposed to be collecting taxes from. Now, it's bad enough to pay taxes in the first place, but imagine being ripped off by the tax collector. Double or triple the amount you have to pay. That was Matthew. But God knew Matthew's heart, and Jesus hadn't given up on him. And Matthew changed radically. It doesn't tell us a whole lot about when Matthew started to notice that Jesus was around, or when Jesus started to notice that Matthew was around, but it says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, from wherever Jesus was going, he was going from village to village teaching, it says, as Jesus went off from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Matthew decided, the song we just sang, I've decided to follow Jesus. Matthew decided to follow Jesus, and he came to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the living God, the promised one of God, God in the flesh, God the Son. Matthew gave up his tax collecting ways and became a lifelong disciple of Jesus, the, who was the Christ. Now, sometime after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Matthew was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write his gospel. His focus was to give an account of the life and ministry of Jesus. It's a message for all people of all times, but when Matthew wrote it, the primary people he had on his heart and his mind as he wrote were his fellow Jews. And he used many Old Testament prophecies to present Jesus as the Jewish Messiah who was promised by God. 
Now chapter 18, where we're looking today, is about two-thirds of the way through this account. At this point, where, where he is in chapter 18, Matthew and the others in Jesus' core group of 12 disciples had been with him, had been following Jesus for about two and a half years, and they'd seen a lot. They'd seen Jesus heal the sick and even raise people from the dead. Can you imagine that? Not just healing the sick, he raised people from the dead. Not a whole lot, but he raised people from the dead. They'd seen him feed thousands with just a few small fish and a few loaves of bread. He did it on more than one occasion. Multiplied the food after he gave thanks to, to heaven. They'd seen him walk on water and they'd seen the winds and the waves obey him. They'd been blown away by his miracles and inspired by his teaching. And three of them, Peter, James, and John, had even seen Jesus transfigured into his deity right before their very eyes. Pretty heady stuff, right? <laughs> could, could make you feel all important in, in the head. What do you think his disciples thought about all this? They knew Jesus had talked about his coming kingdom, and they were likely excited about what roles they might have in his kingdom. They, were, after all, were his closest followers, and his kingdom was coming. They were probably filled with eager anticipation to understand and know what would, what would, what would it hold for them, what would it have for them, what would their roles be. Now, before we go any further, I realize it's December 29th. Yes, it is, right smack in the middle between Christmas and New Year's. It doesn't happen that way very often, but today's smack in the middle, exactly in the middle between Christmas and New Year's. Now, some of you may be expecting a Christmas message because we're so close to Christmas still, or a New Year's message because we're so close to New Year's, but I'm not going to do either a Christmas message or a New Year's message from this chapter today, although I will frame the message from Matthew chapter 18 under what is undoubtedly the most popular question asked at this time of year. It's not, are you reading your Bible? It should be, are you reading your Bible? But it's not yet. Interestingly, it's the same question that Jesus' disciples may have been asking themselves about Jesus' coming kingdom. Do you know what it is? Are you ready? That's the question. Not, are you ready for the question? That's the question. Are you ready? Don't we, don't we get asked that question a whole lot at this time of year, especially before Christmas? Are you ready? Are you ready? We ask it before Christmas because we're all running around like chickens with our heads cut off, scurrying here and there, making lists, checking them twice, trying to make sure we don't forget anybody or anything. It can be downright frustrating. Even with online shopping, there's just never enough time, is there? Amazon had its biggest year ever, and still we all were running around like chickens with our heads cut off, trying to be ready. Now, fortunately, Christmas is now behind us, so we're not asking, are you ready about that anymore? But even if you've had a little bit of a chance to rest, now it's time to ask that question again. Are you ready? Are you ready for the new year? Are you ready for, for 2020? It's an amazing number, isn't it? Are you ready for a new decade? Are you ready? We never seem to be ready, do we? We get stressed out trying to be ready. Are you stressed out today, trying to be ready? Don't be stressed out. In fact, I want, to, I want to take that question and change its focus. I want to make it a spiritual question. I want, to, I want you to ask yourself today, am I ready spiritually? Are you ready spiritually? Are you ready for Jesus? In fact, I want to ask you that question in the words of Bob Dylan on his Saved album. He wrote a song called, Are You Ready? And in that song he sings, Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you where you ought to be? Will he know you when he sees you? Or will he say, 
Depart from me. It's a great song. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you where you ought to be? Will he know you when he sees you? Or will he say, depart from me? As you ponder that, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 18, the first five verses. It says, at that time, what time are we talking about? At the time that Jesus' disciples were expecting him to launch his kingdom. At that time when they were expecting Jesus to launch his kingdom, it says here, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Of course, eagerly hoping they would say, well, you are, of course. They came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Now, in the reading of those five verses, you may be asking yourself, okay, what does this have to do with the question, are you ready? Remember a few moments ago, I suggested that this may have been a question that Jesus was asking them about his coming kingdom. They were eagerly anticipating prominent roles in this kingdom that Jesus would set up, and they were probably saying to each other, hey, you ready for this? I'm going, to be a bitty, I'm going to be a big deal in Jesus' kingdom. Are you ready? Are you ready? I'm ready. They may have been asking that same question. They were probably expecting Jesus to lead an uprising against Rome to be a military leader. They were expecting him to restore Israel. They were expecting to have significant roles in his kingdom. So they asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? What kind of answer do you think they were expecting? Probably something along these lines. Jesus would say, hey, John, you'd make a good general. You've you're you got leadership potential. I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities. Or, hey, Peter, you're, so, you're such a good leader. I'm going to make you governor of an entire region. You guys are going to have big-time big roles in my kingdom. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? Look again at verses 2 and 3. He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. This answer had to take them by surprise, don't you think? It takes me by surprise. Probably confusing to them because they didn't really understand yet why Jesus had come or what the fundamental nature of his kingdom really was. What does Jesus mean when he tells them, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he talking about? I can tell you he's not talking about the innocence or purity of children. Children can be cute, I'll grant you that. But if you have children, then you might readily agree with me, they're neither innocent nor pure. <laughs> they can be rebellious and defiant, striding around like little sinners. Jesus here is not talking about being childlike, or having childish, being childish or having childlike qualities. No, he's talking about the relative social status of children. Think about that for a moment. Children have only limited rights. They have, they have no autonomy, no authority of their own, really. They're subject to the authority and the will of their parents and other adults around them, like their teachers. That's why kids always want to be older. They want to be grown-ups. They want to throw off that shackle, have their own authority, and, and be autonomous. 
They don't want to be treated like children. But that's what Jesus is talking about here as he points out in verse 4. He says that if you want to be great in his kingdom, you must willingly take the lowly position of child. That's the attitude he's looking for. In fact, that's how Jesus came to earth, isn't it? That's what we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. The coming to earth of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how did he come to earth? He came as a baby, as a lowly child. Think about that. God himself, creator of the universe and author of life, came to earth, not all grown up, but as a lowly child, born in a manger, without privilege, without social status, dependent and defenseless. That's how Jesus came. But today, as you think about the baby Jesus, please don't just reduce him to a cute, cuddly little baby. Think about who he really is. Are you ready to do that? John chapter 1, verse 2. I'm going to jump around scriptures quite a bit here. John chapter 1, verse 2 says, he, he, Jesus, was with God in the beginning. Actually, before the beginning of time. What? How can that be? Jesus was with God in the beginning, before the beginning of time, because he is God. Jesus is God. That was startling. That, that revelation, that claim of Jesus was startling to the people of his time. People today largely ignore it. Jesus, was, Jesus is God, yet he came as a baby. Sometime later, as he grew up, he was disputing with the, or talking, discussing with the religious teachers some things about the future and about who he was. And they were referencing Abraham being their father. And Jesus was talking about Abraham and Abraham being pleased to see Jesus' day and how he knew what Abraham had experienced. And they said, wait a second, you're not even 50 years old and you, you, you know what Abraham was feeling? You know what Abraham wanted? You know what Abraham did? And Jesus said in John 8:58, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And when Jesus said that, he wasn't claiming to be someone special, specially chosen by God. He wasn't claiming to, to be close to God or to be a special prophet of God. He was claiming to be God. He left no doubt about it. He was claiming to be the self-existent and eternal one, leaving no doubt about who he claimed to be. He claimed to be God. He emphasizes again when he appears to John in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, who is and who was and who is to come. Think about that, who is and who was and who is to come, self-existent and eternal. That's Jesus, yet he came as a baby. He emphasizes uh, John chapter 1, verse 3, through him it says, all things were made, not a few things, not some things, not a lot of things. How many things? All things were made. It says, without him nothing was made that has been made. Yet he came as a baby. The Apostle Paul builds on the same idea in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, 16, and 17. I'm going to try not to read it too fast. Paul writes in a, in a way that's kind of complex sentences. But I want you to try to listen. Take in these words, talking about who Jesus is. The Son is the image of the invisible God. That's how he starts. The Son is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see God, what does God look like as a human being? Look at Jesus. What would God do as a human being? Look at what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus does. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created. How many things? All things. 
Not some things, not a lot of things, not a few things. All things were created. And Paul expounds on this. Things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. And we have some that think they created their own power, that they're self-sufficient. They don't need anybody else. They're, 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 all, they're their own source of satisfaction. That's not what it says. It says they've been made by Jesus. They've been allowed to exist by Jesus. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Isn't it amazing that this Jesus, this awesome creator God, this self-existent and eternal master of the universe, would enter, elected to enter the world stage as a defenseless, independent little baby. But he did. See, that was his mindset. I want you to focus on that word, mindset. Paul talks about the mindset of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2. Who being in very nature God, talking about Jesus, in very nature God, he's God. The Bible makes no, no qualms about it. Jesus is God. That's the Bible's claim. If you think he's just a good teacher or just a good man, you're wrong. Jesus is God. That's what the Bible says. It says, Paul writes about Jesus saying, Jesus who being in very nature God, now listen to this, he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, which he could have done. He could have, he could have dismantled Rome right then and there and set up his own kingdom. Could have called down a legion of angels to stop his crucifixion. But he didn't. Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, coming as a little baby, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus did. Jesus came to earth in the humblest way humanly possible as a baby. But he didn't stay a baby, did he? The Bible tells us he grew up to become a man. And all the while, all through his growing up, he, he remained perfect and sinless. The only one who ever did. Completely fulfilling God's righteous requirements. Only one has ever done it. It's Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus grew up to become the good shepherd. And as such, to bring salvation to us. He's the only one who could do it. He's the only one who met God's righteous requirements. He's the only one who didn't have to provide a sacrifice for himself so he could stand in for us. Where we had no remedy, Jesus could stand in and say, I'll take your place, I'll take God's wrath that you deserve on me. He's the only one who could do it, and he did it willingly. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Yes, they do hear his voice. And Jesus did it. He willingly gave himself for us. It's so insanely great, it's incomprehensible. We're so familiar with hearing it, but think about it today. It's insanely great. It's incomprehensible. It can't be described. And know this, they did not. Those who took Jesus' life, and if I were there, I probably would have been part of it in my sinfulness, Jesus had to die for me, but they didn't take Jesus' life against his will or without his consent. John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus speaking, said, No one takes my life from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And he did. Our good shepherd Jesus laid down his life for us and then by his own power and his own authority, he rose from the grave in eternal victory over sin and death. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you where you ought to be? Jesus is alive today, you know. After he was put to death on the cross, he was buried in the tomb, and of course you know he rose again on the third day, stayed on earth for a little while, and then he ascended back to heaven with the promise that he's coming back. And what's he doing between his ascension to heaven and his promise to return? The Bible says he's living to make intercession for us. He's living to intercede for us. He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, interceding for everyone who follows him. And listen to what Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, continuing where we were reading a few moments ago, talking about the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, what Jesus is doing now. He's the head of the body, the church. The church is defined as all those who follow Christ. Everyone who's placed their faith in Christ is part of the church. And Jesus is the head of that body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn. Listen carefully. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And because Jesus did this, making peace through his blood shed for us, Paul writes, and we sang about this again this morning, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will either do it willingly or we'll do it by compulsion. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. When you look at the baby Jesus, do you see the good shepherd and the risen Lord? Do you see the one who lives to intercede for you? Are you ready to meet Jesus? Are you where you ought to be? He's coming back again, you know. But not as a little baby. Did you catch that word supremacy a moment ago in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18? This one who came to earth as a baby is now the firstborn from among the dead. That's power. He will, he, he of his own authority and of his own will came back from the dead in victory over sin and death. He's now the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Think about what that means. Jesus is supreme. He's the greatest in power and he's the ultimate authority. He's the greatest in importance, the greatest in character, the greatest in achievement. He's paramount. He's dominant. Jesus alone is supreme. He came the first time as a little baby, as a lowly child. But when he comes again, it will be as the supreme righteous judge and the supreme conquering king. It's described, at least in part, this next coming of Jesus to consummate his kingdom. It's described in Revelation chapter 19. Uh, if you want to turn there with me, I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. This is a revelation given to John by Jesus himself. 
And John writes in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. I want you to try to picture what John saw here. I saw heaven standing open, he said, and before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire. You don't want to be on the wrong side of this judgment, by the way. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were riding, were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. A huge army of followers of Jesus. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So today I ask you, are you ready? But I'm not asking you if you're ready for 2020. I'm asking you, are you ready for Jesus? Are you where you ought to be? Will he know you when he sees you? I hope so. I hope so. I can guarantee that he will. If you do what Matthew did, decide to follow Jesus, make that your priority, confess your sins and accept his salvation. The only one who can save you from your sins is Jesus. Accept him today. Like Matthew, decide to follow Jesus. Make knowing and following Jesus your top priority. Is knowing and following Jesus your top priority? Make knowing and following Jesus your top priority. You will never be disappointed. Amen? And let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you for this opportunity to look briefly into your word for a few moments as we consider this turning of the page on a new year, Lord, and we struggle to be ready for what life throws at us. We just pray that in you, you'll help us to be ready for anything that comes our way. If we're ready for you, Lord, we're ready for anything. And we just pray that you would bless everyone here, bless each family that's represented here. Thank you that you know our needs even before we ask. Pray that you meet us in our need, whatever the needs are, Lord. We, we know your arm is not too short. We trust you, the one who provided our salvation, who showed us the way to live. We know we can trust you in every aspect of our lives, and we do that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.